Good morning to you. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Clay Holland. If I haven't met you, I am one of the associate pastors here at Christ the King. Glad y'all are here this morning. Um, one quick announcement before we begin. You can be working your way to Ephesians chapter 5 because that's where we're going to be reading from if you have a Bible this morning. After this service is over, we're going to continue a super brief, and that's not a preacher's brief. That's, you, can, you can trust me on that one. It's very brief, uh, congregational meeting to elect new elders and deacons. Uh, so if you're a member of Christ the King, after the benediction, after we do the um, little reprisal song, if you'll just stay where you are for that meeting, it'll be over very quickly. And... Um, and uh, I know it's Father's Day, so I'm going to keep it uh, super, super fast. Um, second, not that I'm patting myself on the back or anything, but I don't think John Trapp knows how many ways I'm actually loving him and caring for him. Uh, you know, there was the whole COVID-19 thing, you know, and he wasn't here. And now there's Ephesians 5, and I get to preach it. And so if this upsets you in any way at all, just remember one thing. I'm just the associate pastor. Okay? Don't expect too much from me. All right? So I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. I'm going to read all the way to verse 32. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for telling us profound mysteries and leading us uh, to your word and helping us to wrestle through it. Now, to the truth that you have presented to us, I pray that we would experience that uh, even today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I love about kind of reading uh, history from like 
Britain, turn of the century especially, you know, kind of like Downton Abbey area of, of, of British history, is their understatement. You know, British people at the turn of the century were the kings and queens of understatement. And, and I was reading a story that had the two, I mean, two of the single most profound understatements that I've ever read, and it all happened in one event. It was in 1911. And there was an expeditionary force that was setting out from Britain. They were going to try to be the first to make it all the way uh, to the South Pole. And they trudge all the way across everything. They get to the South Pole. When they get to the South Pole, they find out that there was another expeditionary force that got there 32 days ago. That was a bummer for them. But it got worse. They had to get back. And so on the way back from this expedition to the South Pole, all kinds of horrible things started happening. People got injured. Uh, people got sick. The weather got awful. The, it was just, just ridiculously cold, and there were blizzards, and it was a bad, bad situation. So there was one night that four of the members of this expedition were all huddled together in one tent. It was negative 40 degrees outside. And it was, uh, and there was a blizzard. And one of the people that was in this tent uh, was a guy whose name was Lawrence Oates. And he knew that he was slowing everybody down because he was injured, lower body injury. He knew that if the group kept trudging along at his pace, that they were all going to die, that they were all going to freeze to death. So Lawrence Oates decides that he is going to sacrifice himself for the good of the party. He's just going to leave the tent, walk out into the negative 40 degrees, uh, and sacrifice himself for the others. And so he stands up, he goes to the door of the tent, he opens it, and then he looks outside and he says this, I'm just going to go outside, I might be a bit. I'm just going outside, I might be a bit. That is understatement number one. Now, while he was contemplating this, his friend in the tent with him is writing a letter to his wife. We know all of this because this letter survived. He's writing a letter to his wife. This guy's name is Robert Falcon Scott. And there they were in this tent, negative 40 degrees, blizzard. One of their people is severely hurt. He's about to walk outside of the tent to his death. And this is the way that this man frames to his wife the situation. We are in a tight corner. We're in a tight corner. That's the way he framed it. That's understatement number two. Now, Neither of these two guys have anything on the Apostle Paul, though, when it comes to understatement. Because when he gets to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32, after he's been contemplating marriage, he's been contemplating wives and husbands and all of the glory and all the beauty and all the confusion that goes into that, he quotes Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then he says this. This is a profound mystery. Yes, it is indeed a profound mystery. But, but, but what he's saying is that there is much more to marriage than meets the eye. There's more playing out in the relationship between a husband and wife than we can see. He's saying that marriage is an illustration 
played out in the lives of two individuals that God brings together into a new entity that shows what it means for you to be united to Christ. So this morning what I want to do is this. I want to try to unpack just a little bit about how Paul grounds marriage biblically. It's biblical theology and, and how he grounds it in the gospel in, uh, as a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And, and this, is, this is what Paul says, that marriage, according to Paul, is an exclusive covenantal relationship that is self-giving, differentiated, and life-giving. Marriage is an exclusive covenantal relationship that is self-giving, differentiated, and life-giving. Now, a couple of things before I begin. The first is this. I'm not going to focus a lot of attention on the first part of Ephesians 5, Paul's specific instructions to wives and husbands. I did a sermon series in the fall of 2016 on the topic of marriage. It's called something like you, me, we, and he, I think. Uh, all of those sermons are on the website. You can find them. So if you're interested kind of in a deep dive on that, they're there. I want to focus attention this morning on the end of this passage, the mystery of the gospel as it is illustrated in marriage. And second, I am leaning uh, on uh, for some of the language of this sermon, some of the biblical theology in this sermon uh, on a paper that was commissioned by our denomination two years ago uh, that was about the, the topic of human sexuality. It's called the Report of the Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality. It's very good. Uh, and you can find that online too if you want to read that, if you want to kind of dive deeper into something that's really an important topic uh, in our culture right now. That is also there for you. So let's jump into this. Marriage mirrors our union with Christ, first of all, in that it is exclusive. It's exclusive. Marriage in particular is an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. The biblical sexual ethic uh, from the second chapter of the Bible mandates that exclusivity. Exclusivity in our sexual expression between one man and one woman in the exclusive covenant of marriage. And here Paul points to it in Ephesians 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. But this mystery points, Paul says, not only to that, but to the mystery of the relationship between Christ and his church. How and why? Because Paul has already made this point all the way through the letter of Ephesians, particularly in chapter 4. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is but one way of salvation by grace through faith in the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And see, this exclusive relationship between Christ and his church, Christ and people who express faith in Christ, is not a fleeting thing. It's sealed, as Paul tells us in chapter 1, with the promised Holy Spirit, which is a down payment guaranteeing our eternal life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And so what do we do? We bring our entire selves into this relationship. Actually, truthfully, God brings our entire selves into relationship with him. Not just our souls, 
but we bring our bodies, our very lives as well into our relationship with Christ. That's why Paul spends time in Ephesians 5 talking about don't walk in your old ways, walk in your new ways. Walk as one who has been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is ultimately manifesting itself in our physical resurrection on the third day, oh, not on the third day, that's what Jesus did, but when he returns and makes us uh, uh, sinless. So marriage is an exclusive relationship, and in that exclusivity, it shows forth the, the, the powerful relationship that the one Lord has with you through faith. Second, marriage mirrors our union with Christ in that it is covenantal. And by covenantal, I mean... On the, on, the, on the surface of it, that God makes and keeps promises to his people. God makes and keeps promises to his people. All of the history of redemption began with a promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve had sinned and rebelled against him. I will crush the head of the serpent or my or one who comes after me will crush the head of the serpent and this promise plays itself out all the way through the scriptures culminating and fulfilling itself in the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus so when you're reading the bible even the confusing parts of the bible even the hard parts of the bible you will see this promise this covenantal promise that God makes of redemption pop up over and over and over again where God would say things like I will be your God and you will be my people or or, or he would you know say All kinds of different things, uh, like I will never leave you or forsake you. And marriage on this earth mirrors the beautiful covenant relationship between God and his people in that it is a covenant in itself. It is governed by promises. Marriage is governed by promises. This is why marriage is governed by vows. Now, very practically speaking, a vow in marriage is making a future promise to somebody when it's easy to do that, right? You know, when you're standing up there and you're getting married and, you know, if you're the bride and you're wearing this dress or you're the groom and you're wearing this tux and you're so in love, right? That's the time that it's pretty easy to make a promise. But you know what that vow is? It's a promise that when it's not so easy, it's a promise when, you know, the the cancer comes or it's a promise when you lose that job or you have to move out of this school district into another one that I will never leave you or forsake you, that I will treasure you that I will work towards your good and towards your glory uh, for the Lord that is why marriage is governed by vows very often I think in our culture you'll hear that you'll hear this a lot in our world today people will say look these are just words vows are just words I don't need those I don't need words I don't need I, I don't need words to tell you you know how I feel about it's like the old 80s song more than words you know you know, more than where I don't even remember the lyrics, but somehow that just popped into my head. Um, you know, but people say that. I don't need words to demonstrate my commitment to you. But what I think very often people mean when they say that is something like this. Right now, I'm really feeling this. Right now, this is so right. Right now, I'm just so in love. You know, I'm really feeling this relationship right now, but... I'm going to hold a little bit in reserve. I'm committed to it only in as much as it's fulfilling to me 
and it's making me happy. You see, without vows, without promises in the present that point to the future, you're always going to hold part of yourself back. And this is exactly what God does not do. He doesn't hold himself back from us. He makes the promise of redemption. Then what does he do? He gives his entire self to it, all of him. In the incarnation, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Wedding vows are the only thing The only thing that makes it safe for you to give your entire self to another person. Without it, you're going to always be holding some part of yourself back. That is why the covenant of marriage mirrors our union with Christ in the gospel. It is covenantal. Third, marriage mirrors our union with Christ in that it is self-giving. This is the thrust of really the first part of chapter 5 regarding submission and love. Christ submitted himself to his Father in heaven. If you read the first part of Ephesians 5 about wives submitting to husbands and you think that it's kind of automatically dehumanizing, it's important to remember that Jesus himself undertook the greatest act of submission in the history of eternity when he put aside his crown, took on human flesh, and came to this earth to give all of himself up for us. Christ loved us to the point that he gave himself up, going to the cross to die a death that we deserve because of our sins. He said himself, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Submission and self-giving, self-sacrificial love, that was the ministry, the entirety of the ministry of our Savior, even to the point of death on a cross. And this, I do think, is where our world and our culture creates so much pain for ourselves. We do, we create pain here. Because we have, over the course of time, reversed the purpose of marriage. And we have reversed the purpose of sexual relationships from self-giving to self-taking. From self-giving to self-taking. Sexuality in and of itself has become one of the central tenets, one of the ways that our dominant cultural ethos of expressive individualism is played out in the world. Where that, that ethos says that the greatest good and the thing most to be pursued in the world is my own happiness and my own self fulfillment. Therefore, I'm entitled to pursue that however I want to with whomever I want to, for however long it is that I want to, and when it isn't fulfilling me anymore or making me happy, I I am entitled to then move. In this ethos, in this kind of ethos, this is our dominant cultural ethos, by the way. The, The biblical sexual ethos is definitely kind of a minority culture. It's a minority report here. And it sounds very old fashioned. It sounds very prudish. It sounds, frankly, uh, to a lot of people, just kind of a little bit silly. But the re- it's, it's not silly because, because it's the only arena in which it is really safe to give the entirety of yourself to another human being. It's in, it's in this self-sacrificial, this self-giving love. Marriages thrive. Marriages thrive when each person lives for the other. Marriages suffer and they struggle when people understand this, the purpose of getting married as checking off another box in their own pursuit of self-fulfillment and self-happiness. I, I've sat across from couples a lot. 
you know, over the years that are in deep distress in their marriages. And I've heard some version of this conversation. Well, she's just not the person that I married or he's just not the person that I married. She used to be really fun, but now it's only about the kids or I used to be excited about the prospects of his career, but, you know, now it's just like nothing but work. Or, you know, he stopped working out. Look at him. You know, she let herself go. When it starts to get to that place, it's not good. Um, you know, or just some kind of version of like, it's just not working anymore. We just, we just don't feel the same way that we used to about each other. And that's how marriages begin to unravel. It's particularly acute, I think, for marriages that are about the age of mine. You know, where, where two people have, have been living in, you know, in, in, in Houston, which is very child-centric in a whole lot of ways. If you have kids and you live here, you know that's true, you know, and you've spent so much of your time and so much of your energy, you know, trying to shepherd your kids through the craziness, you know, and, you know, kind of out into the world. And then you look at each other and you go, wait a minute, uh, do I like you? Like, who, who are you, you know? And the, the, the antidote to that particular conversation is, a self, is self-giving. A self-giving marriage where you give yourself up for the other person. You seek the glory of God in them. A mutually self-giving marriage which is safely constrained by vows of exclusivity mirrors the self-giving of our Savior in the gospel. Fourth, Marriage mirrors our union with Christ in its differentiation. And I'm going to veer into the fast lane for just a little while here and consider with you why gender differentiation is not just a traditional value or a conservative talking point, but a model in and of itself of our union with Christ. To put it simply, biblically, in biblical theology, God is not you and you are not God. Those differences are important. The mystery that Paul points to in Ephesians 5 is the union of God himself with his church. And those two parties are very different. The covenant bond of marriage can only mirror that mystery if the parties that join into it are significantly different as well. God created males and females to be alike in valuable ways, but to be different in very important and very glorious ways. The mystery of the gospel is the union of God and man by the blood of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're created in the image of God, the scriptures tells us. There's a mystery there because one of the things that that means is that we are like God in some ways. In some ways, that's what it means to be created in the image of God. But we're very different from God in all kinds of massively important ways. And when he chooses to unite himself to us by faith, that difference highlights so much of the beauty and the mystery and the wonder of the gospel. And that is why the vitality of marriage consisting of the union of one man with one woman isn't just a narrow perspective or, or a hateful perspective. It's actually glorious and important. Glorious in that men and women have unique glories that they bring into a marriage that mirrors the union of the God of the universe with the sinful creatures that he has made glorious through his work on the cross. Marriage certainly means more than that but it also does not mean less than that. It's a mirror of the gospel in your union with Christ. And finally, marriage mirrors our union with Christ in that it is life-giving. 
life-giving in that it is actually life-producing. It might be a better way to express this, but the glorious male-female union in marriage has both the ability to create new life and offers the very best resources to nurture and nourish life. So after the creation of human beings made in the image of God, made male and female, God instructs them, be fruitful and multiply, fulfill the earth and subdue it. It is only in the male-female relationship that new life can be formed, nurtured by the image of God, expressing itself in the glorious, purposeful differences between husbands and wives. Now again, this is not simply traditionalism, it's certainly not legalism, because if Paul is to be believed, there must be something about this life-giving aspect of marriage that mirrors the gospel, that points us to Christ in some way. And he has been talking about this all the way through his letter to Ephesians. It can be summed up, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, God made you alive in Christ. He created in you life, spiritual life, new life in Christ. And we're nurtured in that life in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit that now dwells inside of us, forming us and shaping us more and more and more into the image of our Savior. Now, clearly, obviously, and importantly, this question of of gender is a massively sticky wicket in our world right now. If you're a middle school student, if you're a high school student, if you're a college student, probably if you're an elementary school student, You already know that. If you're the parent of a very, very, very young child, you should probably know that now, that this is going to be super important as as, as an aspect of your shaping and your nurturing and your discipleship of your children. Because in, in many respects, the dominant ethos, the dominant tenet of our culture is that gender is largely a social construct, that it's not a purposeful creational reality. It's a construct that one determines based upon some spectrum between female and male based upon how they identify for their sense of well-being. Now listen, people who wrestle here are really wrestling. People who struggle here are really struggling. And our cause as followers of Jesus is to actually follow Jesus who is full of what? He is full of grace and truth. We are called to be full of both grace and truth. But the truth is that the scriptures do provide us a different picture from that. That God purposefully created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this is purposeful not just for some sense of traditional values, but it's purposeful because it highlights the creative majesty of God and when two people created by God, male and female, join together in the union of marriage, it highlights the mystery of the gospel in this exclusive, self-giving, differentiated, and life-giving covenant of marriage that creates a living, breathing illustration of what God has done with us through Christ. So a couple of things to close. The first is this, don't misunderstand me here. I'm talking about marriage this morning because this is what this passage is about. Uh, Ephesians 5 is about 
marriage and particularly about how marriage is a living, breathing illustration of the gospel. Nowhere, though, in the Bible, and I mean nowhere, when I say nowhere, I mean nowhere, does the Bible say that one must be married to be fully human, to have a full and complete experience of union with Christ, to have a full and complete life in this world, to live a joyful or a purposeful life. Paul himself was not married. And despite what Dan Brown says in the Da Vinci Code, Jesus wasn't married either. Unmarried men and women are in no way, shape, or form second-class humans. You are a full-orbed human being. And your relationship with God is, is vibrant and real. And you have the capacity to love deeply in the relationships that God provides for you. The second thing to remember is this. This is super important. Remember We always have to remember when we're reading the Bible what the context is. Remember that Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians as those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. He's writing these words to Christians. And one of the things that that means is that these instructions that he gives in Ephesians 5 are more about discipleship of professing believers than simply kind of like, you know, vacuous truth bomb that you know he just kind of drops in the middle of some letter that he's writing he's writing to followers of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ to um to love God to love Christ with their bodies you know so one of the things that that means is this that, that, that this is not a tool just simply to bludgeon our culture with or people that don't believe in the gospel this what where i think that paul would have us begin if you're married this morning you know and and, and you're concerned about you know kind of the ethos of our world and and where where the trajectory of our culture is going that's completely understandable But the best place to start, the actual best place to start is what is right in front of you. And what is right in front of you is your relationship with your own husband or your own wife. And the reason that I say that is this. What is going to be the strongest testimony to an unbelieving world who is operating on a completely different ethical planet than, than, than followers of Jesus who lean on the authority of scriptures. What's going to be the most convincing thing for someone to, to give some consideration to these claims of truth? I think that what is going to be the most convincing is that they look into the alternative and countercultural community of the church and they see something very different and life-giving and lovely and powerful playing out there and is like, what's going on there? I want to see more of that. If people just look into the church and they see only marriages that, that are, are, are broken and that are only trying to, you know, fulfill themselves and are simply about kind of transactional agreements of like, hey, look, I'll work 100 hours a week and, you know, if you let me work 100 hours a week, I'll let you buy, you know, a, 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 a new car every, you know, year and a half. Or they only see these kinds of relationships. What is, it, what is going to be compelling? I think Paul... This passage is about discipleship of believers, ultimately. What's most convincing is to invite, 
is to invite into something that is beautiful and wonderful and life-giving. Finally, the last thing I would say is that sexual sin, sin though it is, and as devastating as it actually is and as, as real consequences as it really does have in our lives that are, that are worse than some others, it is still not the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin, the only unforgivable sin that the Bible speaks to is what the Bible calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the full and final repudiation of Christ and his offer of salvation in the gospel. Now, we are sinful people and we live in a deeply broken world. But what Jesus offers to us is refuge, forgiveness, and growth in holiness and grace. For any who would come to him, who would receive his free offer of salvation, and who would submit themselves to the lordship, his lordship in their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. We will always struggle somewhere in our lives until Jesus comes again and kills the struggle. We will. But one of the things that that means is that the doors of the church must be open to those who are struggling in this arena who are struggling sexually with sexual sin. Where else are people going to see the countercultural way of life that is offered in the community of believers? Where else are people going to hear, you know, an alternative claim to, to some kind of alternative way to live or some alternative truth claim? Where else are people going to be challenged to a life of repentance and faith and, and nurture? If not here, the doors must be open. Marriage is an exclusive covenant relationship that is self-giving, differentiated, and life-giving. Marriage is not the goal of our lives, and it is not at all what makes us fully orbed human beings. No, that is what marriage points to. Salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, one Lord, one Savior, who makes and keeps promises, who gives himself to us by coming down and dying for our sins, who is qualitatively different from us in all kinds of ways, yet joins himself to us, and who gives us new life when we were dead in our sins. This mystery is profound. Indeed, it is profound, but it is about Christ and his church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for not hiding mysteries from us. Even when those mysteries are challenging, thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and coming down and taking on human flesh and living and dying and rising that we might have life. Father, help us to lean into you and to trust in you and to love you and help us to be those who invite others to something that is beautiful and life-giving by your nurture in our lives and for those who are married in our marriages. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.